the thunder mutters. A poetry and music podcast presented by Becky Dello and Adam Horowitz. Episode 6 Responses to John Clare Hello and welcome to episode 6 of The Thunder Mutters. I'm Adam Horowitz. And I'm Becky Dello. And this episode is the first of our collection of responses by poets and musicians to the work of John Clare. We've had a wonderful response to our call-out, enough to warrant splitting it up into two shows, or maybe more if more responses come in, which we would welcome with open ears. Just email us at thethundermutters at gmail.com if you have any poems or particularly tunes you'd like to submit. Please do encourage anyone who you know is musical and likes John Clare to get inspired either by his poetry to compose something of their own or to look at tunes from the tune book and record one and send it in. So we'd better get straight on to the show. And up first is a poem from Ian Duhigg, whose most recent collection of poetry is The Blind Roadmaker, published by Picador. Claire's Jig. I'd collected a good jig called The Self, but lilting it last night for Dr Bottle, he chided me, opined it should be sylph, which is Greek, like much he says, meaning beetle. He gibbets such and chokes poor butterflies, now all your rich men's fashionable rage. My fellow inmates praise him to the skies, and like a hawk he scans my every page, the dumb morris of these poor wopstraw words. When pressed, a melancholy Johnson said, Why, sir, we are a nest of singing birds. Well, I hear boughs breaking inside my head, so listen till the music has to stop, for like a tree I'm dying from the top. Up next is Philip Rush, a fiddle player as well as a poet, who sought out and played tunes from Clare's tune book in his teens. Natural, then, that he has combined the fiddle and verse here. The Bullfinch Jig A man sits beneath a hazel, having placed upon a wooden table an old violin and a new camera. He waits. Small birds flit up and down, their nest is high in the tower of the tree, and they ascend the leafy space as if through invisible tubes. The man remembers Tess and how she whistled for the bullfinches, pursing her lips as though for a kiss. He prepares his violin and plays over and over and over again a jig he found long ago in an old handwritten book kept safely in Northampton Public Library. Music floats into the hazel tree where the bullfinches 
after many hours of tuition through many days, begin to repeat the phrasing and the shape of the tune. John Clare once learned such things from gypsies, gathered them by ear, and now the bullfinches learn in turn. Clare's Cremona violin was given him at the height of his short-lived fame. He did not like to take it into pubs or quarrelsome company. Here and now, our man is playing an expensive violin in the birdsong quiet of his garden, where the bullfinches whistle and will not pose for photographs. Thank you.
whistling for the bullfinches. H is for hazel, B is for bullfinch, and L is for the see-through lifts on a luxury high-rise susceptible to the wind. N is for the nest in the hazel tree where the bullfinch rests. C is for the Cremona violin a friend has given me. It is too fine a thing. H is for Highland Mary, a tune I have pricked from a gypsy beneath the sign of the half moon, and which over and over again I play, all in the shivering shade beneath this deep hazel, until B for a bullfinch whistles along with me, without F is for fidget or flutter or flinch, H is for hazel, J is for jiggery-pokery, and R for the birdsong reels. Next up is Lydia Kennaway, whose A History of Walking is published by Happenstance, and who, like Claire, finds music in the hedgerows. I saw crotchets nesting in hedgerows. I saw crotchets nesting in hedgerows today, and buds of quavers bursting in the trees. Triplets were chasing each other around a field, while minims pinned to a clothesline billowed in the wind. And now I meant to say I'll never forget how beauty held my heart. But that's a lie. This scene, these thoughts, these words, your name and mine, will vanish from my memory long before I die. So let me smooth a scrap of paper, scratch these marks in my best hand, the hook of a J, the curl of a C, to tell the future me the truth about that distant day. And here's the proof. Next, we have a contribution from poet and flash fiction writer Tanya Hirschman whose latest book, And What If We Were All Allowed to Disappear, is published by Guillemot. This is a letter poem to John Clare, discussing the complete worlds beneath our eyeline. To John Clare, May 2020. Dear John, I am interested in your interest in insects. The city of black ants you are peering at under that tree, their government, their community... What language do you imagine they speak whisperingly? I too have written about insects' sense of togetherness. Do you know the fire ant? It's almost indestructible. In groups they form bridges, rafts to overcome disaster. I'm interested in your choice of insect names, tiny loiterers, happy units, things of mind, fairies. Is it their size that sets you to see them magically? Or something else about their industry, the complete worlds beneath our eyeline? I hear despair in your talk of a fly's liberty to creep, to be as it likes. Seldom, you write, do they do wrong. You are too hard on yourself, John. We all do wrong and right and everything between. It's nature. I'm sure a fly, an ant, seeing us, would marvel too, 
at how we think, we plan, we innovate, the magic that we do. Next, we have a set of tunes beautifully played by Neil Brooks. They're tunes taken from John Clare's manuscript, The Red Petticoat Hornpipe and The Beefsteak Hornpipe.
Next up is poet and visual artist Helen Ivory, whose latest collection, The Anatomical Venus, is published by Bloodaxe. And in this poem, Clout, she takes to her roof to observe the birds. Clout. With our theatres and the churches stilled, we dusted off binoculars, ordered in some ersatz lawn, climbed upon a flat, forgiving section of the roof to turn our profuse, unwrapped attention on the birds. Crows and magpies shifted in their branches, wise to it struck us their shady reputations, as if they'd read our books and heard our songs. Any search will tell you this taxonomy of bird is sharp enough to employ simple tools, and long before we commenced to eavesdrop had been busying about their natural lives. And now, observe, they appear to watch us back and with creaky panpipe voices preach homilies, low, barnstorming soliloquies. <clears throat> Thus, humans pick the world up in their hands, their wretched, fleshy hands, and smote the lot. Next is a tune that I'm playing. It is The Self and I chose that one because of Ian Duhigg's poem which opened the episode. Next up is Chris Hall, whose selected poems No Fish is out now with the collective press. Chris has, amongst other things, worked as a nurse in an old-fashioned asylum, as he puts it. With that in mind, Chris has chosen to explore Claire's last years in his powerful poem Enclosure. In 1837, the poet John Clare was admitted to High Beach Asylum, Epping Forest, suffering from delusions. In July 1841, he left High Beach and walked the 90 miles to his home in Northborough, in the Diocese of Peterborough. In December of that year, he was committed to Northampton Lunatic Asylum, where he remained until his death, 23 years later. Enclosure from this vantage, set beside the sill, gazes vacant through the sullen pane, dusty with dread and debris from the air, the while to ponder past and present woes, and through spent years of torment and despair, summoning spectres through the phantom gate, espies a figure 
dawdling through the lich, having brief tarried in the churchyard there, for rest and respite in this haunt of ghosts, to hearken to the voices and their tones before the recommencement of the trudge, striding, halting, stumbling at the stile, treading the nettle, cursing the stubborn briar, fern and foliage unsized since summer pruning, creeping like pooty croup, leaping loping hair, skitty as lady cow, song of the throttle, drifting along the wind, trotty wagtail, skirting the woodland verge, a waymarked wanderer, a village bard, potboy, poet, taking the morning walk from high beach to the beckoning never home at Barren North, close to the Peter Soap. Four days the passage, given the biding time, the journey out of Essex into Hell. Though home it was I sought when setting out. A steady journey across a stricken land, glimpsing to right the palings and the posts, to left forbidding signs, the thorny fence, the sundered pasture and the plundered soil. A ninety-mile stretch from start to cusp, and at its end that strange familiar hearth and sojourn all too brief to swage the woe. But that was then, and when, and was, and why, not what I thought it be, nor here, where Jack the Giant Killer lurks and waits and calls me Byron through the vacant air, shuttered north of Hampton, west of Ware. Now with my dazzled eye I scan the rim, the liquid gaze, the scorching gleams, the glass that sifts the time and scopes the coming tide. A rural muse, mad as the dandy prat, riddled with hatreds, anguish, body aches, lost in a pear tree lane by maple tree, soaring with swallow, brimming with humble bee, the child Harold striving on living sea, natural as pig sleep, cockrow, fire tail, reading where daisies blow, the five-foot peasant penning the verse and scan with summer's mellowing pencil scrolling free, 
confounding the cumbered curse of sanity. And past these wanton walls they steal the spring, seizing the land, thieving the common wheel. Whilst here inside they seep my essence out, and blare banality within my skull. So thus I greet the speaker from the void, for now I'll say I am, and what I am. Then, in the final time, on greensward ground, beyond the scape of speech, nor sense, nor song, heaven, Hades, and the space betwixt, my hand I raise, come which, come when, I will. Next is a tune called Mrs. Casey. It's a jig. It comes from Claire's manuscript, although the version I play is slightly different and is one I learnt from the playing of Sam Sweeney. The final poem is by Ella Duffy, whose debut pamphlet, New Hunger, is published by the poetry business. Inspired by Claire's poems about nesting birds, she reads Starling's Nesting, as she is herself surrounded by birdsong. Starling's Nesting. There will always be starlings in the roof, but here's a tree hollow wrecked with shell. Shock of young hunger, gold rush lily beaks. If the cat could pour itself through, one paw before the other's damage, this would be a different spring, not the poplar's curling sound of mothers, hatchlings, gray and pink and grotesque, who'll grow out of need, leave their nests to the ants, shifting threads of worm to their own haunts. This is a spring we came home and stayed. We've really enjoyed putting together this episode. It's made a lovely change to sit back and listen to contributions and your responses to both Claire's music and poems. 
We've certainly got enough contributions to do another episode of this sort, particularly with poetry, but we'd love more tunes to come in. And please don't hold back sending in more poetry as we're happy to do other episodes along the lines of this one. Especially as it's very much in the midst now of the 200th anniversary of Clare's first publication. We'd like to keep on celebrating John Clare and we'd love you to keep on celebrating John Clare with us. One thing I've found in this strange lockdown time is that I've really noticed the seasons changing almost daily, watching the leaves come out on the trees at home. It's been fascinating and I feel almost... I wasn't particularly aware of John Clare and his poetry, but I feel like I'm walking hand in hand with the shepherd's calendar and experiencing the seasons through him and with him. Well, thank you. I think we'll leave it there and just remind you all that we do have the Kofi page to put a few pounds in to help the running costs of the podcast. It's www.kofi.com forward slash the thunder mutters. Please feel free to email us on thethundermutters at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at The Thunder Mutters or on Twitter at Thunder Mutters. See you next time. Bye.